Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We are indeed starting a brand new series today called Show Me Love. And the idea of this relationship series is to talk in uh, very specific seasons of relationships. So if you'll see in the top left, we're going to talk today in just a moment about friendship, not just friendship uh, within um, same-sex friendship, male-to-male, female-to-female, but also friendship within the marriage relationship and the dating relationship. And then we're going to talk next week about parenting. And the third week, we're going to talk about, well, or excuse me, next week in marriage. And the third week about parenting, God's laboratory of love and parenting, and then on into grandparenting. And so we're going to talk about how God's love remains consistent in each and every season of our life. Speaking of uh, being friends, how many of you have ever been unfriended by someone on social media? You've been unfriended, right? All right. So I opened up uh, one of my social media accounts a couple weeks ago, and I noticed that I had lost five friends since the last time that I'd posted. And, you know, when you see that, you don't really know how to feel at the beginning. First, mo- first you're thinking, was it something I said? Was I posting too many cute kitten videos or too many, here is another picture of my so stinking adorable hashtag blessed kids pose? Um, is it me um, being on an on a angry political rant about whatever's happening with the wall again? Or maybe these are all reasons why I unfriend people. But um, nonetheless, we don't know how to feel a lot of times when it comes down to being unfriended. In January of 2009, I read of an article, Burger King, the flame broiled burger place, ran this ad campaign where they said if you would unfriend 10 of your Facebook friends, they would send you a coupon for a free Whopper. And the whole mentality was this. The way it was supposed to work was in you unfriended the person, Burger King, we used to call it the BK Lounge because that made it sound a little bit better. Burger King would send them a notification that they had been unfriended for a delicious hamburger, which was supposed to make them say, wow, this burger must be something. If they're willing to give me up for a burger, then this is something. Well, the New York Times reported that the stunt worked too well. In fact, within the first week, actually six days, 233,906 friendships were terminated on Facebook, and Burger King was obligated to buy 23,000 or to give away 23,000 Whoppers, and they discontinued the ad within six days. They didn't want to go bankrupt, right? Well, how valuable is friendship to you? How valuable? How valuable is friendship to you? The word friendship has taken on a skewed meaning, not just from social media, but a large part in due to social media over the last, let's say, decade. I don't know how many friends I have on Facebook, but most of them are not what the Bible would refer to as a friend. They would not make the qualification as what the Scripture says is a friend, even if Mark Zuckerberg calls them friend. I want to spend our first message in this series, Show Me Love, talking about friendship. Everybody say friendship. Today, most people in our culture, they just don't pursue genuine friendships. Some people don't think that they're important. Others people don't know how to pursue a genuine friendship. A recent survey asked the question, it said, over the past six months, with how many people have you discussed deeply an important matter in your life? That was a recent survey. Over half of them, over 50% could not come up with any one person outside of their immediate family. They couldn't come up with one person, over 50%, having a deep conversation with someone other than a family member. Many people, they just don't think it's important. 
Let me give you a question that will prove my point. Hopefully with one question, I'll prove my point today that we don't think friendships are that important in our day and age. Think about your dad right now. Can you think of your dad's best friends? Your dad's best friends. Not people he worked with, but your dad's best friends. If you can come up with his good friends, you are in less than the rare minority, less than 10% of the American population because most men quit pursuing any friendship after they get married. They're done. The friendship pursuit is done because, again, I have a wife, and now my life begins to be reorganized in different ways. John chapter 15, if you study God's word, you'll see that few things in life are as important as friendship. Now, there's two primary reasons why friendship is so important. Number one, we are made for friendship. I'm going to explain today, and I hope quite convincingly, that it is virtually impossible to live a happy life and to really be happy in life without true friendships. It is impossible. This is all, of course, by God's design. Number two, friendship makes us. We're made for it. So we're made for it, but it also makes us. There is no more formative factor in your life than your, indeed, friendships. I'm going to suggest to you by convincing desire that if you get your friends right, that that one single thing, maybe more than any other in your life, could set you up for success. And on the flip side, if you get your friendships wrong, you're almost guaranteeing some significant struggles in your future. Here's the phrase I'm going to use a lot. Hopefully it's down in your psyche by the end of today's message. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You show me your friends and I will show you your future. In fact, I want to convince you of this, so if you would, on your note card that you received is a post-it note. Someone asked, is this uh, to take notes on? <laughs> Hardly. You would need 52,000 of these to take notes in a sermon, right? You're very well aware of what we do at Dwelling Place. So this is not to take notes on. This is to everyone to take out a nice pen. You'll see a pen there in the back in front of you. And please, I want everybody to participate. Everybody at Dwelling Place means every. Body. So if you have a body, I want you to take a pen, okay? In just a few moments, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to have a real awkward session of looking at anybody who's not doing what I ask you to do. So just go ahead and forewarn you. Take out a pen, take out your post-it note, and here's what I want you to do. I want to make this very tangible to you. I want you to take the next few moments and write your five closest friends. You can go ahead and begin to write them. Write your five closest friends. Write down on that sheet of paper your five Closest friends, I'm going to give you 15 seconds. 15, 14, it'll be a slow 15, 13, 12, 11, nine more seconds. <laughs> Good, five closest friends, your five closest friends, seven seconds, five seconds. Somebody looking off, this is like a, not a, you can't cheat on this test, right? Like, you, you, People are looking at the person next to you. Five closest friends. Five seconds left. All right. Five, four, three, two, one. All right. You can you can put down your pencils if you'll take your test and pass it to the person. No, I'm just kidding. You're not going to turn this in. You're not going to turn this in. Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to show you the two reasons that friendship really matters in your life, and then I want to tell you how you can pursue the right friendships. Number one, friendship matters because we are made for it. Friendship matters because we are made for it. We're made for friendship. 
Let's start this series with this message and talking about what Jesus says about God's design for relationships. John 15, verse 9. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, therefore, in my love. Jump to verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. For you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I have chose you and I appointed you, he says, of course, to go and bear much fruit. And your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you. Why? So that you will love one another. If you look at this passage, this passage is all about friendship. Jesus uses the word friend three times. It's clearly his subject. He's talking about friendship. So whenever Jesus uses the word love in John 15, 9 through 17, he is talking about friendship love. In the Greek, there are four different words for love. C.S. Lewis wrote the book, Four Loves. There is storhe, natural affection, eros, erotic love. And there is agape, what we call supreme love. And there is phileo, city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. When he is talking about love in John 15, don't think agape love. You're thinking of phileo love. You're thinking of friendship love. Jesus is talking about friendship. You say, why is friendship so important? Well, the short answer is right there in verse 9. From all eternity, the Father and the Son have existed as friends. And being made, you and I, in the image of God, this means we are made for friendship. Listen, the doctrine of the Trinity might be hard to understand. I understand it's somewhat difficult and complex to understand, but it is the foundation for you to understand how you are wired. From all eternity, John 15 and verse 9 tells us that the Father, that God has existed as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are bound in friendship love. It is truly biblical for me to say friendship was never created. It has always existed. Friendship has never been created. It's a part of the eternal nature of God. It is... Uh, what we call relationality between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has never been a time in all of eternity when there was not friendship. You and I created in God's image, which means we are created for friendship. We are created to be friends and to have close friends, might I add, just like God. That's why when God created Adam in the Garden of Eden, he said it's not good that man should be alone. Have you ever thought about how weird that is? God says, and he doesn't make junk. God doesn't make junk, right? He has intentionality and purpose for what he makes, but he said it's not good that man should be alone. I mean, that's an odd statement. Why would God look at something he just made, that he made just perfect, and no one has messed it up yet? Adam and Eve have not sinned yet. Sin has not pillaged the world, entered in the equation, and he declared something to not be good. He declared it not to be good because Adam was alone. And you say, well, he was like God. Yes, he was like God, but God was not alone. And so even though Adam was created in the image of God, he was not like God and that God was not alone and Adam was alone. You see, let me say it this way. Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. Adam was lonely because he was perfect. Now this matters because loneliness is the only problem you have because you are created in God's image. 
See, it's the exact opposite of what our culture thinks. See, all of our other problems in life, they come out of sin. They come out of imperfections. Loneliness is the problem we have because we're made in the image of God. Loneliness is the issue we have because we're created by God and in God and in for relationships. You say, well, I just don't really like or I really don't need friends. I'm kind of a loner. I enjoy fishing by myself and working on my car. Well, that just means you're not very much like God. That's what it means. That you're not very much like God. That God exists in relationship. He exists in friendship. God says in Genesis 126, let us make man in our own image. He, what's that? That's one member of the Trinity saying to another, let us make man in our image. You are in the, in the image of God, therefore you have a deep need for true friendship. And that is deeper than whether or not you're an extrovert or introvert. Whether you're extrovert or introvert, you still have a deep need for friendship. Jesus in John 15 gives us a glimpse into what God-like friendship is all about. This is what he says first and foremost. A true friend is someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. A true friend always lets you in and never lets you down. Let me explain that. Always lets you in. Look at the text. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends, for I've all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. That means a true friend lets you in. Servants don't really know the hearts of their masters. Servants' only role is to obey. The servant's role is to obey their master. Jesus says, I've always wanted more for you. I don't want you just to obey me. I'm not just making you a servant who obeys me. I want to share my life with you. I want to share my joys with you. I want to share my thoughts with you. I want to share my pain with you. I want us to fellowship together. I want us to walk together. I want you to walk with me. Jesus always lets you in. He doesn't just consider you a servant. He considers you a Friend. The Hebrew word for friendship is the same as the word in Hebrew for secret. That Hebrew word is the word sowed, S O A D. It comes out of Psalm 25 and 14. Friend equals secret. What does that mean? For the Hebrew individual, a friend is someone who lets you into the secret places of their heart. A friend accesses the secret areas of your life. A friend accesses what is really secretive to you. That's why, incidentally, I could say to us, that's why you can't have that many true friends, by the way. You can't have that many true friends. There's not enough space in your life to tell everybody everything. On top of that, it's not safe to do that. But there's not enough space in my life to tell everybody in my life everything about me. And, and, and see, I can't promise everyone in my life that I can be there for them. I can't promise them that. Like, I can't get on Facebook and say, you know what? Um, call me anytime, night or day. You need help moving, I own a truck. You know what? You need uh, someone to watch your cat on vacation, bring your cat to me. You know, my real friends and those of you who attend this church regularly, you know that I would never do that because I would box that cat up and FedEx it back to the depths of Sheol where it came from. Okay? The devil is a roaring lion. Cat. You, you just can't have, did we get an amen back there? You just can't have that many people that show up at your house at 2 a.m. and expect you to get up. You can't have that. You can only have a select few of those people. That's why, first and foremost, a true friend always lets you in. But then number two, a true friend never lets you down. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do. Those of you who do what I commanded you to do, what is he saying? Jesus was so committed to his friends that he would go to hell and back literally for them. Before he would let them down, he would lay his own life down. 
No burden he wouldn't bear to save your soul. No life he wouldn't go to the depths of hell to buy back. No offense he wouldn't forgive in your life. A true friend always lets you in and a true friend never lets you down. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. By the way, this is one of the most absolutely distinctive things about real Christianity. Can I just say apologetically right now? Other religious leaders, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, they never related to their followers this way. When they died, what did they do? They left behind their sayings and they said, obey this. But you know when Jesus died, he didn't just leave behind a body of information. He left himself behind in the person of the Holy Spirit. And his invitation was not to follow my teachings. It was to follow me. It was not to follow what I said. It was to follow me. It was not to just follow a body of information I left you. It was to walk with me, to commune with me, to have fellowship with me. This is what separates Jesus from any other what we would call religious leader. So friendship matters because we are made for it. Can I just say to us, without question, invariably, the quality of your life goes up so much when you have true biblical friends. The quality of your life improves drastically when you have true friends. As the latest researchers have said, they did a study last year at the University of Virginia. They took a group of college students. They took them to the base of a steep hill, and they fitted them with a weighted backpack. Some of them had to go off to the bottom of the hill by themselves. Some of them went in groups of two. Others of, you, others of them went in groups of two and three with their best friends. Then they were asked at the bottom of the hill to estimate the steepness of the hill. The steepness of the hill. Invariably, the students who stood with friends gave lower estimates of the steepness of the hill. And the longer the friends had known each other, the less steep the hill appeared. No matter what you encounter in life, it looks less difficult when you are with the right friends. It is in our psyche and makeup that we can face more in life and more difficult tasks in life when we are surrounded by the right people. By the way, many marriage researchers say the single greatest factor in determining the quality of your marriage is the quality of your friendship. If you want a good marriage, you gotta be a good friend with that marriage partner. Here's what one study showed, I'll read it to you. Whether wives feel satisfied with the sex, romance, and passion in their marriage is 70% dependent on the quality of the couple's friendship. Oh, but men, we're different, right? Men, we, we, we're different. We, we like sex a whole lot more. For men, let's listen. Whether they are satisfied with the sex, romance, and passion in their marriage is 70% dependent on the quality of their friendship. So the researchers concluded men and women are from the same planet after all. We want friendship. See, most of us don't think of marriage in terms of friendship. When I talk to young people, I told the students today, today is your message, man. Today I'm coming after you. I'm laying before you what I've seen in 12 years of student ministry. Most of us, we think of marriage as mainly attraction and mainly romance, spice with a little friendship. But good marriages, godly marriages are primarily friendship, spice with a little romance. It's being friends. So it turns out that good marriages are really friends with benefits. We can redeem that phrase. We can redeem that phrase. God believes in the friends with benefits. It's just within the bonds of monogamous, monogamous covenant relationship marriage. Friendship matters because we're made for it. Number two, friendship matters because it makes us. Friendship matters because it makes us. It makes us. 
Now we go back to the book of Proverbs. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he had some statements for us. He said in Proverbs 13 and 20, he said, he that walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will destroy or will be destroyed. Now it doesn't mean uh, uh, people are going to destroy him. He will destroy himself. He destroys himself. According to that verse, let's look at it. Would you look at the screen and see the verse? Let's just be honest. Let's just ask the hard question. According to that verse, what one factor determines how your life turns out? One single factor. Now, I know there's other part, places in the Bible where other factors come in. But in this verse, what one factor determines the quality of your life? It's the quality of the people to whom you choose to walk with. Who are you going to walk with in life? Who are you going to be friends with in life? Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, if I could put it in Craig's translation, would be, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Or as today's title of this message is, your friends are your future you. Your friends are your future you. Your friends are your future you. You are indeed the average of your closest five friends. So take back out that post-it note that you have there and take those five friends and I want us to do something. Um, To take the mean, to take the average, you probably have one extraordinary friend on there just like Jesus. Take that one out, gone, right? You're taking the good one out and take the bad one out. The one who's a dud who thinks he's a stud, take him out. All right, take the dud friend out and if you look at those three friends that are remaining, the average of those three friends, that is more than likely the quality and the character of who you are right now. So look, if you were stoned last night, Chances are three or four of your friends were stoned too. If you're chasing after God this morning, chances are that three or four of the friends that are on your post-it note right now, they're chasing after God with all of their heart. Your friends show you the future you. Consider this. I was telling my mom and my, my wife this week, this researcher I came across said the friend relationship was the most significant one when it comes to losing or gaining weight. This is interesting. Listen, if your spouse gained weight, you had a 37% chance of gaining weight as well. If your sibling gained weight, you have a 40% chance of gaining weight. So, you know, there's some DNA and some predispositions there. But if it's your friend that gains weight, then you have a 65% chance of gaining weight which tells us that what your friends are eating is actually more of an indicator of your health than your closest family members. That's an American study. So if your bestie, your BFF, suddenly suggests that every night is ice cream night and every day is Golden Corral Day, you better have a talk because you're going to be big quickly, okay? Your friend has an impact in even your own relationship with food. See, we all of us, we have something we would like to become. Some of us would like to become a better parent. Some of us would like to become a better student. Some of us would like to become a better worker. Some of us would like to become a more solid Christian. What if the decision to become one of those was really a decision about what friends we chose? In other words, I often tell you it's not the dreams you dream that determine your life. It's the decisions you make. Listen, it's not the dreams you dream that determine your destiny. It's the small decisions you make in everyday life that determine your destiny. And one of the most important decisions you'll ever make in your life is the friends you choose, the people that you keep close with you. You are one friend away from being a better parent. You are one friend away from being a better spouse. And quite the contrary, you are also one friend away from being a worse friend or being a worse spouse or being a worse parent. See, some of you in this room, you could be one key relationship away from your entire life changing. 
one relationship, maybe two relationships. You, su- you say, okay, Craig, I got the gist here, so what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to break up with all my non-wise friends? You know, like I've got non-wise friends. Do I break up with those friends? Well, not quite honestly, no, not that way because the Bible says we are to befriend the sinner. We are to actually be in great relationship with the sinner so that we can share Christ with the sinner. So here's another way to look at it. I want you to think of it in three concentric circles. Three concentric, voila! Three concentric circles. Here's what I want you to think about for a minute. In those three concentric circles, you have what we call intimacy, which is basically three or four of your closest friends. These are the three or four people that are in your life that are closest to you, that know your heart, that you know their heart, that you're in great relationship with. Then you have the influence concentric circle. The influence is you influence them and they influence you. You influence them, they influence you. Then you have what we call the care circle. The care is you spend time with them, you care about them, you pray with them, you talk to them on Sunday, you you, you engage them. This is the way that God designed you, the care, influence, and intimacy. Now, how your life will change is that you've got to make sure that those in the intimacy circle are believers. And they're not just believers, but they're equally yoked believers. See, often, so many times in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we always say to be not... What, what fellowship does light have with darkness, right? And so we, we tell people, don't be yoked with unbelievers. Like we tell young people, don't be yoked with unbelievers. You shouldn't be in a dating relationship with a non-believer. That is not entirely true. Uh, yeah, you shouldn't be in a relationship with a non-believer, but it's not just talking about being in a relationship between believer and non-believer. It's being in a relationship being equally yoked. What that means is yoke is about pace. Yoke is about pace. So if you want to know who you should marry, you run as fast as you can after Jesus. You look to your right and you see who's there and that's who you marry. See, because a yoke keeps us together. So it's not just, oh, see, too many young girls I've, I've seen say, oh, he's a believer, then I can date him. No, no, no. You need to make sure his discipleship is dynamic before you even choose. Don't determine whether or not you date somebody by believer or unbeliever. You choose you whether you date somebody by dynamic discipleship believer or just believer. Is their discipleship dynamic in ways? Are they pursuing Christ? Are they going after Christ? So when you talk about intimacy, you need people that are in your closest circle, three or four that are really individuals who are pursuing after Christ. Your life changes when that takes place. Now, um, even the animal kingdom speaks to this. I read of this study. This is really fascinating. Years ago, scientists were trying to decide why fish swim in schools. You ever seen that on the uh, planet Earth or whatever? One fish goes here, and then all of them go here, and then, you know, you you see this, and there's hundreds of fish, and they're doing this, and you're like, what makes them do that? Here's what they did. They took the fish, and they, they wanted to isolate the part of the brain that enabled them to swim in schools. This is kind of, it's kind of, if you're if you're a PETA fan, then you're not going to like this. Um, but they took these fish and they isolated the one part of the brain that taught them how they should swim in schools. And then what they did is they did a partial lobotomy on a fish and they took out that part of the brain that causes them to know when they should turn left, right, and stay in schools. And much to their surprise, they put that fish back in the water and the fish could still swim. But the fish, as expected, started swimming off by itself. But this is the part where the researchers got dumbfounded. When the one fish started swimming off by itself, the whole rest of the school turned and followed that fish. And I thought, oh my God, that is exactly what happens in high school. You get one brainless kid who gets a partial lobotomy and he's like, oh, I'm going to introduce a new fad. And everybody's like, oh, and they just follow I mean, think about it. That's exactly what happens. 
Why? Because we were meant to be together. We were meant to walk together. You need to move some of you, some friends out of the intimacy circle into the circle of influence. Some of you need to move some friends out of the influence circle into the care circle. Now listen, you don't send an initial, uh, an official notification that you're doing this. Okay, like this is, this is mental taxonomy. This is not like label them, congrats, you've just moved into the, the intimacy circle. Good for you or... Uh, demotion, you're out of influence into care circle. No, this is what you do in your brain. But you are the average of your five closest friends. You're the average. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Here's how Proverbs 12, 26 says it. The righteous man is cautious. Everybody say cautious. That word means spy out in Hebrew. Wow. The, the, the righteous man spies out his friendships. He looks very carefully at his friendships. He's spying them out. But the way of the wicked... No, it leads him astray. Literally, are you spying out your friends? I've mentioned to you many times that the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon. Now, Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, Jewish rabbis claimed that a lot of his wisdom was from his dad, David. Dad, David, passed on this wisdom to Solomon. Well, I started thinking this week, David's life was built around three friendships. His entire life, you could put in three friendships. Let me talk about those three friendships because I am going to propose to us that we need each of those type of friends in our life. These three friendships matter to us. The first friend that David had is what I, is Samuel. This is what I'm calling the crown bestower. The crown bestower. Samuel, who was he? He was the prophet. You remember when Jesse had his seven sons paraded in front of the prophet, but the, David was on the backside of a desert still you know, taking care of sheep dung because he wasn't even considered important enough to be brought into the presence of the prophet when he was anointing the king. But Samuel was the one who said, no, it's none of these. I need you to bring in your other son. And, and, and when he did, God revealed to Samuel what, what he had called David to be only when he was a shepherd. So where everybody else saw a shepherd boy, Samuel saw a future king. Do do you have friends like that? Do you have friends who look at you and discern what God's doing in your life and call you up into what God's called you to be? You need crown bestowers in your life. You need people who perceive things about you that you can't perceive about yourself. I have had mentors in my own life that perceived in things in my life that I never could perceive at the time and said, you know what? I know where you're at, but God has called you for so much more. You need friends in your life who will hold the crown over your head, who will be like Samuel and will hold the crown over your head and urge you to grow up into it so that you become all that God called you to be. Listen, this is the truth. You've got to understand your identity is determined by what the most important people in your life think about you. So you say, no, I, I, I'm determined by God. Well, that's a person. Your identity is determined by what the most important people in your life think about you. Let me say it this way. You will become what they think you are. So parents, this matters with the way we parent our kids. We're not trying to raise them to survive the world. We're trying to raise them to change the world. They will largely become what we expect them to be. We speak to their identity. We speak to who they are. And you've got to understand, you need Samuels in your life who can do this. God hides future kings in sheep coats. God hides future deliverers, Moses, in bulrushes. God hides future messiahs, Jesus, in carpenter shops. Well, that means that we've got to have people in our life who are able to perceive what God's doing in us, put a crown over our head, and call us to live into that role. We have to have Friend type number one. Friend type number two is Jonathan. David had a Jonathan in his life. Now, Jonathan is what I'm calling the faithful companion. The faithful companion. Jonathan was David's best friend. 
as a teenager. They were so close that they were intertwined. The Bible says in, in 1 Kings that their souls were knit together. He was Saul's son. Now, that is an interesting fact because Saul, who was the king of Israel at that time, King Saul started to hate David because he was jealous of David. You know, Saul had killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So Jonathan risked his own life on multiple occasions to go warn David, my dad's coming to kill you, or, or go try to encourage him. And that's even more remarkable when you consider that David's ascension to the throne came at a great personal cost to Jonathan because who was Saul's son? It was Jonathan. Who was supposed to get the throne? It was Jonathan. But Jonathan said, I know that the prophet anointed you, David. You're called to be the king, so I'm gonna do whatever I can to encourage you and being the king. Do you have a friend like that? A friend, listen to me, high school, middle schoolers. Do you have a friend who does not look at you with selfishness and look at you with jealousy, but they look at you with selflessness? They want you to be all that God's called you to be. They wanna speak to the destiny and the purpose of God in your life. Listen to one of these, these verses about, about David. A, a, a verse... Uh, uh, 1 Samuel 23 and 18, it says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and he went to David at Horesh. Horesh was 30 miles away where he strengthened David's hand in God. Like, do you, do, you, do you get really, really annoyed by passive friends? You know, like you send a text message and you never can hear back. Like, I, I understand we don't have to be at everybody's beck and call, but I need like two or three friends that when I text them, I need it right back. Or if, if, if two or three people in my life that when I reach out for help, I need you right now. I need you to speak to me right now, whatever's going on. Well, this is, this is Jonathan. He's the exact opposite of a passive friend. He hears that David's discouraged. He gets the text message and he gets up and walks 30 miles, 30 miles to encourage his friend in the Lord, 30 miles. See, a faithful companion is the person who walks in when everyone else walks out. That's a faithful companion. These friends say, I'm not gonna pray for you. I'm gonna pray with you. I'm not going to pray for you. I'm going to pray with you. My emotions are wrapped up in your emotions. I'm going to share your pain. You're in pain. I'm going to be in pain. You need these type of friends, folks. You need these type of friends. My favorite place that David uh, Solomon talks about this is in another book Solomon writes called Ecclesiastes. He says this in verse, chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. He said, two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm when they're alone? AKA, when you lie down in life's cold, you need somebody to spoon with. <laughs> That's what it's saying. When you lie down in life's cold, you need a spooner. Okay, you need someone to spoon with. Okay, no joke. Night I got married, my friend who was afraid of the dark. He, oh, dear God, please don't listen to this message. Um, I didn't ask his permission. My friend who's afraid of the dark, who was in my wedding, the night I got married, the night before I got married, my last night as a single bachelor, I fell asleep in my king size bed and he was to sleep. I was in a parsonage. He was to sleep in the other room in the other bed. I woke up at about 3 a.m. and he is spooning me. <laughs> On my last night as a bachelor, he is totally spooning me, okay? He is like wrapped up around me, all right? From that night on, I've only spooned this woman right here. But, but that night... He spooned me. Proverbs 18, 24. It said, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. For those of you who have your Hebrew Old Testament open right now, you'll realize that the word sticks is the same word for cleaves in Genesis 2. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave. What does that mean? That means that friendship is as strong as marriage in this verse. That's what he's saying. It's cleaving. It's cleaving. It's sticking together. It's staying close together. You say, I want these kind of friends. Well, we provide a vehicle for developing these kinds of relationships. Again, not for spooning, 
but friendships to develop. And that's called connect groups. It's called connect groups. Now listen to me very carefully. This is why I beat people over the brow, so to speak, with connect groups. Connect groups do not equal friendships. They are only the vehicle whereby friendships can be made. But this is why I always tell people, get out of rows and into circles. Get out of setting. Like if church is only just this and we're not able to have circles to develop relationships, then it's not really like a family reunion. Like what family reunion have you ever gone to where you stood, sat down for an hour and a half and stared at the person, the back of the head of the person in front of you. So it can't just be this. It has to be more than this. We have to get out of our rows and into our circles. We've got to build friendships. We've got to build relationships one with another. Here's the friend type number three. His name was Nathan, but he's what I call the loyal wounder. You need some loyal wounders. We don't like loyal wounders, but you need loyal wounders. Later in David's life, he would commit adultery Bathsheba and have her husband Uriah killed. He tried to cover it up. He tried to live a lie. It was destroying David. It would have destroyed his future. So God sent Nathan the prophet to tell him that what he did was wrong. And you know what he did? Nathan told him this parable. And David's like, oh, that guy's horrible. And what does Nathan do? He says, you are the man. You are the one who did it. He looks at him with prophetic utterance and he says, you're that person. You have these people in your life? When is the last time you've got a friend who loved you enough to say to you, that is a stupid decision? That's a horrible decision. What you're doing is not going to work. What you're doing is going to hurt your marriage. What you're doing is going to hurt your testimony. What you're doing is going to hurt your relationship with God. And that is a dumb decision. Now, how do you respond when you hear that? Well, it hurts, doesn't it? It embarrasses you. It makes you think that you're, you know, you, you really don't want that relationship anymore. It will make you mad, but, but it will save your life. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuses, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let me tell you something. Kisses always feel better than wounds. Kisses always feel better than wounds. Kisses feel better, but if you only have people around you who give you kisses, life will feel good for a while, but you'll destroy yourself. And he says, So faithful are the wounds of a friend. So listen, here's what you got to do. You got to deputize a few friends. You got to give them a hunting license, and it's not just for a few months. It's for all seasons. You give them a hunting license and you say, give them, give them a, a weapon to do it too. This is how you do it. You give them a weapon and say, when, when you want to speak to me of something, use this weapon. And then here's what you do. You tell them to speak to your blind spots. Listen, blind spots by nature are things that you don't see. People say, they're my weaknesses. No, once you see the blind spot, it's now a weakness. I'm not talking about weaknesses. I'm talking about blind spots. I'm talking about things in your life that you can't see. That's why you got to have friends that are deputized to have open hunting license on your life. And to say, oh, this is dumb. Oh, this is going to get you in trouble. Oh, this is not going to go in well for you. Just like old David Pallison said, he said, things in a secret garden inevitably grow mutant. Nothing secret in my life will ever be good. It's always going to grow mutant. It's going to grow mutant. If you're a loner, you go fishing. I don't care if you're 62 years old, 58 years old, 42 years old. You're a loner, you go fishing, you do your own, you work on your own car. Your life has grown mutant and you don't even know it. You don't even know it. You need friendships, relationships. So there's two reasons friendship matters. Number one, because you're made for it. Number two, because it makes you. So take great care and spy out your friendships, as Proverbs 12, 26 says. Now, before I end this, I want to do what I hope we do every week of this series. And I want to show you that the power behind good friendships the power really for all relationships comes from the strength of Jesus' relationship to us. Let me say it this way. It's really the theme of this series. The theme of this series is the quality of these relationships horizontally will be determined by the strength of this relationship vertically. 
that when my vertical relationship is strong, my horizontal relationships have the capacity to be strong. You see, Jesus is the best and ultimate friend we could have. Jesus is the ultimate friend. He is the best friend we can have. When you think about it, he is the combination of Samuel, Jonathan, and Nathan. Jesus is Samuel. Jesus is the better Nathan. Jesus is the better Jonathan. Samuel, he spoke courage. What did Jesus do? Jesus said, you know what? You're a sinner, but I call you a saint. Jesus said, you are dead in sins, but I declare you to be alive. Just like Samuel did. He called us up and put a crown over our head and calls us and grows us into it. You were not my people, but I made you my people, Jesus says. Your name was wrath. Your name was failure. Your name was judgment. Your name was sin. But now I call you mercy. Now I call you new creation. Now I call you more than a conqueror. Now I call you useful for my service. He declared what God wanted to do in your life before God even did it in your life. He held a crown over your, la- your life and your head and he grew you into it. So he is the greater Samuel. But Jesus is also the greater Jonathan. Remember what Jonathan did? He served his friend David even at a great personal cost to himself. When David was in need, Jonathan walked 30 miles to Haresh. Jesus did more than that. He crossed the gap between deity and humanity. He became a, a living being. He became a living soul in the Virgin Mary and he grew up and he died on a cross. Jonathan gave up his right to the palace to help David get in. Jesus purchased our place in the palace at the cost of his own blood. He made his call. He made our cause his cause. He made our cause his cause. He took our sins and our sorrows and he made them his own. Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. You remember when Mary and Martha come out to Jesus and they're weeping? I asked my kids that question. Knox, why in the world are they weeping when three minutes later Lazarus is going to be alive? Like if I was Jesus, I'm not Jesus, that's why I'm not Jesus, because I would have come up to them and they're weeping. I said, Dad, no big deal, I'm about to raise your, your brother, your brother from the dead. But Jesus weeps, why? Because that's what friends do. That's what friends do. They take our emotions and they make them their own emotion. They feel what we feel. He's also our Nathan. He loved us enough to confront us. He could have just ignored us and annihilated us and destroyed us in hell, but instead he came to us even while we were despised and reviled and murdered him. He came to us. He is the Nathan. Jesus is the best friend described in John 15. He let us in. He let us in. He opened himself up to us. He tore tore his own body and that became the veil by which we have fellowship with God. He stretched out his arms wide open on a cross. He made himself vulnerable for us. And also, he never walked out. He refused to walk away from the cross for you, even when he could have. He said, I won't let go for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He forgot and endured and overcame its shame. Why? So that he might buy and purchase and redeem your soul. And that friendship with Jesus is what enables us to become good friends with others. I can become a good friend because Jesus has been a good friend for me. Let me tell you something real quick. Two reasons why being a friend with Jesus helps you be a friend with others. Because number one, it gives us the ability to be vulnerable. What do you mean, Craig? Let me tell you why you really can't open up to other people. You know why I've learned 12 years, 13 years of pastoring. Here's why people have a hard time opening up with others. Because we are afraid that when we do, they'll either yawn or they'll walk away. They'll either consider it not to be a big deal Or they'll say, oh, I don't really want people. I I thought you were good on the outside, but you're really not so good on the inside, and I don't really need those type of friends in my life, so I'm just going to walk away from you. They think that that you'll... you'll, The reason why people don't open up is because they think that when they open up, people will yawn or will walk away. Well, did you see what happens in John 15, 16? Look at it. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You know what that means? 
When you're a friend with Jesus, it gives you safety. What do you mean, Craig? Yeah, Jesus' main point here was not, hey, dudes, I'm a Calvinist. Okay? That's what we tend to think in our day. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I didn't make you a friend because you were righteous. I didn't choose the popular rich, cool kids to be my friends. It wasn't like in Disney movies. You know what Disney movies are where you looked under the dirty layer and you saw the inner beauty, like the outer layer was bad, but you looked inside and and that was really good and that's where the Disney princess is? No, it's the exact opposite. You think you're dirty on the outside, Jesus says, but you're actually dirtier on the inside. You're like a whitewashed tomb. What is a whitewashed tomb? A whitewashed tomb looks good on the outside, but what is it on the inside? It's dead. He said, "You're you're not bad on the outside and then you got good on the inside. You're bad on the outside, but you're worse on the inside, and yet I still chose you because I love you. So when you know that, then and only then can you be vulnerable with your friends. See, when you know that God has accepted you and he loves you and he calls you chosen, it then doesn't matter when you open up to others and you feel like they reject you. See, Jesus' love helps me to be vulnerable. He chose to love me anyway. What that means is that we're not ever afraid of him discovering something new about us and rejecting us. He can't discover anything new about us than what he already knows about us. He already sees all the brokenness in our life, and yet he loves us anyway. That gives you the ability to be vulnerable with other people. You're not afraid to open yourself up to people because someone more important than that and than them saw it all, and he accepted you, and he loved you. And so you're not afraid of exposing just a broken part because he's promised not to own accept us but to fix that broken part and then listen when you can be honest about your weaknesses you can really connect with someone else can I just make us really clear true friendship is born by connecting over shared weaknesses true friendship is not born by connecting over strengths true friendship is born by connecting over weaknesses another way I can say this is you can impress people with your strengths but you can only connect with people with your weaknesses You can impress them with your strengths, but you can only really connect with them when you bear before them weaknesses. Here's the second thing it teaches us. It teaches us how to live with grace. It teaches us how to be vulnerable, and it teaches us how to live with grace. One thing I've learned, true friendship is hard. Can I get an amen? Like true friendship is very hard. True friendship, biblical covenant friendship is even harder. Light friendship is easy. Like, oh, I like you. You make me laugh. Oh, you're pretty. Let's be friends. That's, That's light friendship. But true lifelong David, Jonathan type friendship is hard because inevitably that friend's going to let you down. That friend's going to do something wrong. That friend's going to be inconsiderate. That friend's going to be inflexible. That friend's going to be blind to your needs. That friend's going to do you wrong. Selfishness will get the best of them. So listen to me. If you don't know how to show grace, you will never have lifelong, satisfying, trinity-like covenant friendships. You have to learn to show grace. You have to... in Jesus' relationship, Jesus' friendship gives me the freedom to become the friend I've always wanted for myself. It enables me to become the friend. Some of you are looking for a dating partner. Well, happiness is not in finding the right person. Happiness is in becoming the right person. So I have no problem with people putting their list of the 10 things they want in a spouse. My question is, do you meet all those 10 things? And if you don't meet all those 10 things, then you can't have those 10 things on the person you desire to meet. The better person you become, the better person you attract. So we take it upon ourselves first and foremost. Say, Jesus, your friendship with me gives me the freedom to become the friend that I've always wanted for myself. That's what your friendship does for me. So I want to end today with a big question. Would you come, Maddie? Are you Jesus' friend? Are you Jesus' friend? 
I'm not saying are you religious. Many of us are religious. You may be religious. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, have Jesus ever become your friend? Has he become your friend? That's what it really means to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, to become Jesus' friends. He's not looking just for servants who do what he tells them to do. He's looking for friends who love him and walk with him. Listen to me. True Christianity is not obeying rules. It's entering into a relationship. True Christianity is being friends with God, having friendship with God. And that one realization will totally forever revolutionize your Christian life. See, when you realize Jesus is a friend, you know what it does for you? It changes how you pray. See, when you realize Jesus is not just king, but he's friend, it changes how you pray. Why? Because the comfort you feel in trouble, every burden I bear, he makes his own. He shoulders it with me. Here's how you know if you've made Jesus a friend. When you've made Jesus a friend, prayer is no longer a duty. It comes naturally to you. If you want to know whether Jesus is your friend, let me just make it really clear. Do you long to commune with him? If you don't, I would, I would say to you, he's not yet your friend. I didn't say he couldn't be your Lord. I said, he's not your friend. He's not your friend. When Jesus becomes my friend, prayer becomes natural to me. When Jesus becomes my friend, conversation with him becomes second nature. It's first response because we share life. You know what the second thing that happens when Jesus becomes my friend? It changes the way I view sin. Because see, if I choose Jesus as a judge, I'm afraid to sin. I'm afraid because you know what? I, I, I can, or, or what I'll do is I'll try to find out what I can get away with without going too far. But when Jesus is my friend, I start not wanting to hurt him. Or, or I'm wanting not to hurt him. Do you remember when Judas walked into the garden that night? with the chief priest and the high, the court of Caiaphas, the high priest. When he walked in that garden, you remember what he did? He told the men, he said, the one to whom I kiss, that's, that's the son of God, that's Jesus. And he walks up to him. And before he kisses him to betray him, you know what Jesus calls him? Friend. What? Time out. Time out. He said, friend, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. You know what I've started doing in my life? I've started in my life, every time I sin, I imagine Jesus looking at me and saying, friend, why did you do that? Now that's changed the way I view sin. Like, I can understand if you're my enemy, you would do this to me, betray me, but you're my friend. So why are you doing this, Judas? I'm your friend. I've opened my life to you. When you sin, imagine the Lord looking at you and saying, why are you doing that, friend? Not, oh, I'm a judge, and oh, let me find out how I can get away with so much. No, 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 He's your friend, so you don't want to hurt him when he's your friend. Let me say it this way. Being scared of God's judgment will change my behavior, but embracing the friendship of Jesus will change my heart. When I realize he desires to be my friend, and when I know that he is my friend, then I, then and only then am I able, liberated and empowered to be the friend that God desires for me to be, to be my spouse and the friend I need to be to the people around me. He's a friend. The six closer than a brother. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.